I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today is a very special day. Today we talk to one of my spiritual guides that shaped the direction of my life, Mark Nepo. He's an award-winning New York Times bestselling author and spiritual teacher. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. I'm thrilled to be be talking to you. I've read maybe four or five books in the last 10 years of yours, and it, you, you've totally changed the direction of my life. Not that you're responsible oh. for that, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a good thing. Um, I just recently left corporate America and cashed it in. And on this two and a half year book tour, I just finished writing a book, Bridging the Gap, Life, life Lessons uh, from the Dying. And I've, I've learned a lot. And I, I think... What keeps speaking to me throughout your writing is the more we talk about life, we talk about death. And the more we talk about death, we truly are talking about living. And yeah. and it, I was reading, um, of course, the book is like a Bible to me. I have it right here. The Book of Awakening. And oh, there, yeah. Thank you. It, I mean, I draw in it. I have <laughs> clippings in it. Um, oh, it's great. Yeah, it's it's very similar to uh, a daily ritual and meditation for me. Um, I go, It's my go to book, along with uh, Wayne Dreyer, um, one of his books. But I love the story about your grandmother when she was dying and in, in the book of awakening. And it really resonated to me for those of us that work in this sort of end of life industry, how beautiful it really was. Um, and I wanted our listeners to hear that story from you, if you don't mind. Yeah. So that was a very special moment for me. I was in my thirties. I was, it was just before I had been diagnosed with cancer, not knowing that that was on the horizon for me. And, and my grandmother, who was more of a mother to me than my mother, um, she was 94 and this was before assisted living or formal hospice. And so she was just in a wing of, uh, of Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center, which I don't think exists anymore. And I would go to visit her from upstate when I could. And I, I came down in May in a beautiful, on a beautiful day. And I went to see her. And she'd been in this room for probably six months. And I came in and, and she was kind of glum, you know, and and I said, oh, hi, Grandma, what's the matter? And, you know, she was a Russian Jewish immigrant. And so she always had a thick, a thick Jewish accent, Russian accent. And she said, oh, it's a gray day. And, you know, I had just come in. It was beautiful out. And I thought, oh, is she losing her clarity? You know, um, I said, well, Grandma, it's really beautiful out. And um, and then I looked around and the one window she had was had never been cleaned. So it was completely, it was a gray day to her. So I said, Grandma, we'll clean, we'll get the window clean. Let's, I'll take you, it's, the window's dirty, and we'll go outside. And she looked at me as only someone um, almost 100 years old who had crossed an ocean to be here. She looked at the window and she looked at me and she said, ah, uh, got a dirty eye, see a dirty world. Mm. Mm. And that, I can't tell you how many times her wisdom has helped me and saved me because certainly there are gray days, there are difficult times, but before we jump to deal with that, let's make sure it's not the window of our eye or our mind or our heart. So I think the first thing that I've learned and I've made a practice in is to clean that window of perception, of feeling, of thinking, of being, and then see what the day looks like. And even when there are gray days, you know, the sun doesn't stop shining mm. because there are clouds. Right. You know, yeah, we experience the clouds. That's real. But the sun is still shining, and that's also real. Wow. Now, were you with her close to her death? You know, I wasn't, I wasn't with her um, at, you know, the, in the week of her death. You know, I, I got word 
um, that when she had died. And, you know, I know you have a lot of experience with hospice, and I've had a few experiences with loved ones close to their death. And, uh, you know, my wife, Susan, her mom, who was I was very close to, and she they had the most remarkable love affair, her mother and and her. And um, and we were with her uh, right up to the moment of her death. And, um, and it's a very holy, as you know, and powerful and and whole W-H-O-L-E experience, you know, and and my own experience of almost dying in my 30s, you know, I think ever since then, um, I've always felt, I, I'm 67 now, I've always felt kind of eight and 80 at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? I, gosh, that's a, totally, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's that's amazing. You you knew what um being at the bedside of the dying did to me is they would, would stop me in my tracks. You know, I'd be on the conveyor belt of work or whatever and I would hear due to the fact that I'm a storyteller and I love to hear stories, uh, their their life stories really impacted me and and really made me engage instead of television writing really authentic stories that really were all teaching me about life and and this this big adventure that I'm about to take but what did you I mean of course you're a cancer survivor um what did cancer teach you about life and or death in that moment well i think and let, let me you know that there were a couple of key moments for me in that journey and you know uh one was being wheeled in you know i I had um, a rib removed from my back surgically and um, and being wheeled, you know, into surgery. Um, it was a very powerful, unexpected moment where I felt like I, I, I dropped below all names. Like I knew, you know, if you call me Mark, I respond, but I had dropped for the moment into that place between life and death where everything is so essential before it's named. You know, we call this thing out the window a tree and the thing that I'm looking at is your face. And, and, and that, you know, that's a wonderful convenience, but they point to things that are unnameable. And so ever since being blessed to still be here, I've always kind of lived below names, even though naming is a holy process. And, I think one of the other things that um, was very uh, powerful for me was during that journey, um, after, about three weeks after my rib was removed, I, I uh, had the first uh, chemo treatment that was horrifically botched. And I was in New York City and uh, sent to, you know, my former wife and a dear, dear friend, the three of us were in a Holiday Inn. And I started to get sick, you know, every 20 minutes. And, and this was, you can imagine after the rib was gone, um, that wasn't that long. So it was very difficult, very terrifying, brutal. Um, and eventually, you know, not knowing whether I needed to go to the emergency room or not, or when, and, you know, two things happened in that, you know, I was, we were all exhausted and terrified. And eventually, you know, by five or six in the morning, we did go to the emergency room. But just before that, um, you know, my former wife was very upset and angry at God and, you know, and, and, and she had said, where is God, you know, mm. and I was kind of sitting against the wall on the floor with my knees up and my arms on my knees, exhausted, having, you know, been spitting up blood and, uh, all, you know, awful things. And I don't know where it came from in me. But I whispered here, right here. And, you know, a little while later, the sun started to come up and I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen next or where we were going. But as the sun came up, I realized that as real as my experience was, somewhere nearby, a baby was being born. Mm. And somewhere nearby, a couple was making love for the first time. And somewhere else, you know, maybe a parent and a child were 
repairing after years of not talking to each other. And so I felt this, this deep below names uh, perception or insight that said to me, you know, to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. Oh, wow. That's so cool. That is such a great little saying to, to see something broken doesn't mean that all things are broken. Oh, uh, you know, and I think that, I, I think that we, you know, very natural, it's very natural for human beings, you know, that when we're going through something difficult like that, it's understandable that we paint the whole world. Mm. If we're in pain, then the world is a painful place. If we're afraid, then we make the world a fearful place. But the miracle of life is that all things are true. All things aren't fair. All things aren't just. But all things contain truth. And so, you know, we tend when we have those glimpses of the totality of life, then we try to we play seesaw. We oh well, then I guess what I'm going through doesn't matter. And I think what you know I've learned over time is that we're challenged to keep our heart open to all of it. That what I was going through was real and scary and painful, and everything around me wasn't scary and painful. How did you get there? I would have been so your former wife, like ah, you know. <laughs> but here you are. It's is just. And, and the older I get, the more I lean into the present moment, no matter good, bad, or and not have those feelings toward that moment, something miraculous happens. I'd like to say that there was some wisdom on my part, but no. Uh, I think that, you know, I was just reduced uh, to, to, and I think we all are, to what is essential. And, and you know, being a poet, uh, being a teacher... Um, you know, there was a chance for me for the first time, time in real time to trust my heart. So my heart gave me the, this information and then I needed to trust it, which is really to me, the working definition of faith, not faith in a, in a system of ideas or religious codes, or, no faith in life when we don't see everything but we sense everything. And so I, even though I didn't understand what was happening, I think, you know, much of my life has been trying to understand and unpack what happened in those moments. Were you scared? Oh, of course. Of course. But you know, what I've learned about fear, which is not, you know, surprising, is fear gets its power from not looking. Yeah, true. True. I mean, there's a proper place for fear. Fear is there to, uh, in right in its right proportion, to alert us to legitimate danger. But what we do as human beings, and what I've done, we all do it, is okay. So I've been afraid, and I get through something, and then I go, well, you know, next time, like the the the, the place where I was legitimately afraid is, let's say, six feet circle around me. Well, then I say, well, you know what? To be safe, I'm going to make it 10 feet. But what that does to us is it removes us from life and we can't see because it's what's coming at us is farther away. So while, for me at least, while we think that's going to protect us or give us extra protection, it only accelerates our fear. It only accelerates our fear. And I, I learned this, uh, this is, it's in one of my books, but I learned this from, there are so many simple teachers everywhere. And this was uh, from a little bee, a little bumblebee. I used to jog. Well, my, my exercise has <laughs> shifted every, every decade, but I used to jog. I used to be an urban jogger and I would jog down to meet my old friend, Robert, who was working at the time. And it was summertime. And, you know, I grew up where, you know, my mother, who was really, you know, afraid of all insects. So, you know, we in our house, it was like, you know, if there was anything flying around, everything had to stop till we got <laughs> it, you know. And so I inherited this. And so I was jogging. And I'd say maybe this was when I was in my late 30s. And, um, and I was tired and I was waiting. I had my arm on a bench and a bee landed on the bench. And my first response was, oh, maybe I should swat it. 
but maybe because I was tired, maybe because I was in my 30s, uh, you know, I thought, what an odd response. Not only am I infinitely bigger than this bee, I have legs, I can move. So I said, I thought I'll do a little experiment. So I, I waited and the bee landed closer and I felt a little adrenaline, but then, oh, I could see the bee because it was close and I could see that its stinger was not, was not protracted. So that meant because I let it get close, I had more information as to what was actually dangerous. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I said, oh, there's no need to be afraid because I can see where the real danger is. So what that all taught me was that we all carry a ring of fear around us. That's legitimate. And then we make it bigger to ensure ourselves, to anticipate the next time we're going to be afraid or experience something difficult or painful. And so what we do by that is we, if we get afraid enough, we can make that ring of fear so big that no one can reach us. And then we're quietly sitting in the center of it going, oh, I'm so lonely. Life is terrible because we've pushed life away. We've let fear govern us. So one of the practices that I try to do and I invite people to do is can you right size your ring of fear? Can you look at what your legitimate ring of fear is and what you've extended it to? And what can you do individually, personally, to make those things concentric so that you're not keeping life farther away than needs to be, so that you're getting more information rather than making up information? Wow, that's wow, that's a great point. And I, I need to apply that to a few things in my life today. I mean, but you know, what's really interesting is there is this movement, this end of life, death conversation movement occurring. And I believe the baby boomers are, are pushing this to normalize this death and dying conversation, because in America specifically, we've pushed death away, like you said, like this fear. Yes. Um, and even someone commented on a social media site um, about I was... I was playing with a kid in this RV park and they know I've written a book about death and dying. And this little kid, so inquisitive, seven years old, is like, hey, what causes death? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Uh -huh. And in my head, I'm like, what am I going to say? And I was like, birth causes death. <laughs> and he's like, really? <laughs> and I just kind of shut my RV thinking he's going to run, mom, mom. But, but, but it, the simplest answer is birth from, from that moment. But what do you think is occurring in our nation? Because there is this death positive movement happening. In your opinion, why do you think it's happening? Well, I think let's, let's back it up and look at uh, throughout the history of humanity. And, and, you know, throughout the history, and this applies to this movement, but it also applies to some of the difficulties I think we're going through in our country and worldwide right now. So there have always been, like if you imagine the swells in the ocean, and everything crests and then they go into a belly of a wave. And, and, and over hundreds of years and decades, you know, this, can, this happens where um, we push each other away and then we lean into each other. We're afraid, and then we're, we lean in, and we want to learn and grow. And so I think that, you know, we've come out of a period in our history where, which happens, I think, repeatedly, where we've been afraid of life, death, feelings. You know, we've pushed... Vulnerability. Away, right, pushed a lot of things away. And... And it feels like with this generation, the, the wave is shifting and we're, we're moving toward and each other and toward these mysteries. And so the fact is, as you well know, you know, death is not something to be uh, applauded or denied. It's like gravity. I mean, it's, this is just spiritual physics. Right. Every, everyone is born and everyone's going to die. 
And uh, yeah, we'd like to live forever, but we won't. And, you know, for me, having almost died in my 30s, you know, I'm, I've always been uh, comfortable with death, but, but kind of like, uh, like PTSD, traumatized about dying. Mm. You know, like, um, you know, it was so difficult when I went through with cancer that, you know, it's been really interesting for me as I get older. I'm healthy, thank God. I feel great. But, you know, like a used car, as you get older, stuff happens, you know, even if it's just right. that, you know, uh, you know, when you're young, you know, you bang your knee, that's nothing. And you, you're older, you bang your knee and it's sore for a week or two <laughs> weeks. And then you say, well, gee, did I do anything? And should I check? I don't want to fall in the rabbit hole. So it's required a, di- you know, I've always, because of my cancer journey, looked at, um, uh, pain and difficulty and this gateway to this trap door to falling into unexpected, you know, to death. And, and, um, that, you know, if my body's okay, I'm well, and if something isn't, then I'm ill. And, and I've had to reshift as I've gotten older because no, I'm well. And just like a tree, an old tree, a beautiful old tree has nicks and branches broken and scars in the bark. Well, that's what happens to us. You know, I mean, another way that I, that metaphor that's really, uh, spoken to me is of a meteor. So a meteor, as it approaches the earth, as it moves closer and closer and and goes through the atmosphere, more and more of it is flaked off and burns away. And the meteor gets brighter and brighter until there's nothing left but light. Hmm. And I think that's the journey of a spirit in a body in time on earth, that the process of aging over a lifetime is that this container that is me, that is you, like the comet or the meteor, it starts to flake off and burn away and we get brighter and brighter the older we get until there's nothing left but light. Now, you know, that's helpful, but you know, when things happen, um, you say, oh, this is what it feels like to have something flake off. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, oh, this is real. Oh, but I, you know, I don't know who said this. I don't know if it was you or Oprah or Liz Gilbert or someone that talked about having, um, we humans are having a spiritual experience. Um, and, and and on earth. And so, you know, I connect spirituality with, with all aspects of birth, living and death. And I don't know why I've always connected that. Um, but you also write, um, that each soul is a gust of God's breath. And, and I feel like death has to be a spiritual awakening or an experience since we are spiritual beings. What is your thought? Well, and I think, and and that quote is actually from Tillyard de Chardin. And he he says that, but you know, Oprah has, has, has cited it. I've used, quoted it too, where he says that we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. But, you know, I, I think that, that death and life are one. And just like so many other things, like we talk about the mind and the heart, they're really in many cultures one perceptual organ. But in order to talk about them and understand them, we separate them out. Or just like beauty and suffering, they often go hand in hand. And and I think life and death, from my own experience, I feel like when I when I was close to death, I couldn't distinguish between life and death. Hmm. It was all one big river of energy and of light and of dark. And, you know, you can't have even light and dark. We talk about, we talk about things like that, but no, you, you, this is where the wholeness of experience is what is life giving and resilient. You know, you can't, if you didn't have dark, you'd have no depth perception because you only have depth perception because there's shadows. You look out, this is where, Ursula Le Guin, in her great novel, Left Hand of Darkness, these two characters are in exile and they're, they're, they're walking across the polar cap of this 
you know, sci-fi world. And they're at the top, which is closest to the sun. And they can't go any further because they're right at the where the sun is directly over. And there's no shadow. So they have no depth perception. They can't, they have no perspective. And so, yeah, how do we... Welcome. You know, I know. Do, do you know uh, Journey to Ixland by Carlos Castaneda? Do you know that book? No. Oh, well, Car- Carlos Castaneda, not to go into a whole thing, but there's an, I bring it up because it's a powerful, wonderful thing in there. It's basically the story where Carlos Castaneda is, and he claims this is a memoir, and it's so out there that a lot, that people argued, oh, it can't be a memoir. This He made this <laughs> up. But he is a doctoral student. Uh, looking at at um, bug life in the Southwest, okay, he goes to interview uh, Native American elders, and he interviews a Yaque elder, Don Juan, who's a sorcerer. And the guy uh, makes Don Juan his apprentice against his will. Like he said, I got my doctorate to get at. Yeah, okay, you're weird. I have my doctorate to do. And he goes, that's all very good. You're my apprentice. And it's all the lessons that Don Juan teaches this reluctant apprentice. And one of the early ones is they're sleeping at the foot of a canyon in the middle of the night. He wakes him up and says, there's a mountain lion. Get going. And he scales this cliff. And in the morning, they're on the cliff, and there's no way. He he looks at it. He goes like, I never would have been able. How did I do that? And he talks to him about how death is an advisor over your left shoulder. He says, death is always an advisor over your left shoulder. And the trick is turn around and look to death and listen to death. But don't get hypnotized because death is only there to advise you how to live. Oh, wow. I will have to pick that. That's 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 my thing too is that that's how i've learned how to really focus on really what matters most and it's not material things it's not money it's not titles it's that woman in the laundromat last week that said something that was so so humanizing it changed me within an instant well yeah yeah relating to people in these unique places it just has given me hope for humanity again and humankind and that there is kindness out there. Well, I think that I think that human, you know, there's always been this argument whether human beings are innately kind or cruel. And I, of course, feel that we are innately kind. And uh, a great uh, Chinese philosopher, Mencius, he was lived about 200 years after Confucius. He had this beautiful image for this. He said that water allowed its true nature will always flow downhill and join other water. It can be manipulated to go sideways, uphill, damn it, force it. But allowed its true nature, it will always flow and join other water. He said, so to human beings. Oh, wow. And human beings allowed their true nature will always flow in kindness to each other. We can be manipulated or manipulate ourselves to do otherwise. And so, you know, I think that one of the great gifts of death and of almost dying, was that it seared into my being the the truth that there's nowhere to go. There is no there. There's only here. Mm. Right. There is no where wherever you think you're going. And now that doesn't mean that we don't need to be engaged in life and work toward things and care about things and 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 uh, and all that. It doesn't mean that we just sit around and do nothing. But the whole point for me is that any of our dreams and goals and ambitions are all kindling for the aliveness of our heart, for the fire of aliveness that lives in our heart. And and so we are engaged in the world. One of the images in one of my books, The One Life We're Given, is like you take a match, a wooden match that you light a fire with. Well, we all know that in that unlit match, that fire is dormant in the tip of that match. And so too with us. So so our light and our warmth and our gifts are dormant um, are until we strike our gifts against the needs of the world. Why doesn't people strike that every day? I mean, why is it taking us, and I include myself in that, why don't 
Why are we afraid to strike it? Well, I think that these are all the, you know, this is, we go to the larger sense that everyone, everyone who ever lived, um, no one is exempt, has to uh, inhabit this, their incarnation. And wisdom doesn't shortcut what we have to go through on the journey. It simply supports us. And so we all have to go from uh, not seeing to seeing, from being callous to being sensitive, from being afraid to being loving. Um, no one, no one is exempt. You know, there's an old uh, Sioux saying in the Native American tradition that says, "The longest journey you will make in your life is from your head to your heart." Mm. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. I think of you as one of my spiritual spiritual teachers, even though, you know, this is our first time meeting, but you, oh, you, thank you. you absolutely have inspired me to look at things like the ordinary and look at them in an extraordinary way to enhance my life. And, and I just think as an artist, you know, you I always wonder, how does Mark Nepo, how does he take care of himself? Because I'm, <laughs> you know, it's, you give so much um, and your writings are so vulnerable and so raw and so real. I mean, how do you take care of yourself to to feel like you are living that one life well? Well, well, well. Thank you. I, I, I think for me, you know, at this point in my life, I'm, I'm very. Um, uh, I try to live an integrated practice. You know, at different times in my life, I've meditated or I've done different things. And at this point in my life, I try to be integrated. What does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, I start every day, um, you know, by uh, pulling up the blinds and letting light in, by taking care of uh, our uh, yellow lab, Zuzu, and by making coffee for my wife. She's a night person. I'm a morning person. And so... (laughs) So, you know, I'm always consciously starting the day by letting light in and doing something for things and people I love. Mm. So that that's like my intention every day. And one of the things I do in which almost dying affects me that I do every day is, you know, we all make lists. We all have things to do. We all good things, you know, nothing wrong with that. So, you know, every day I start, I have a list of what I'm going to do. But as soon as I make the list, I always say, if this is the only day I have, then what stays on the list? Oh, wow. Or or what goes on the list that I didn't put on the list? You know, maybe it's calling my oldest friend to tell him I love him, even though he knows it. And so, so by the time I do that, the list that I made is almost gone. And, uh, and so, you know, you might say, well, why do you make the list? Just, you know, go to the second one. Well, no, that's the same answer to the question of why don't we do this? Because I feel, and I've learned we have to, we're human. This is part of the human journey. No, I need to make the list and then I need to unmake the list Hmm. because the process of doing that is how I, in a felt way, land on what is real. And what matters most. And what matters. And what matters. So I do that every day. And I try very hard every day. You know, so this is an archetypal, uh, I think, process that happens to everyone, is the difficult things in life, uh, pain, fear, worry, despair, you know, all of these things, um, they say hello by pushing us away. They're all encompassing and they say hello by woof, they're in your face. And our job as being spiritual beings in human bodies, um, is when that happens to lean back into life. The times we need to lean back in is when we're pushed away. Hmm. And so that also is a daily practice. 
because it doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't help matter how much you've read or what you've learned or how many books you've written. No one is exempt from fear, worry, pain, struggle. This is the nature of the human journey. In fact, I think that that in the way that erosion is to nature, suffering is to human beings. Mm. I think it's there. I'm not glorifying. Again, it's like spiritual physics. I'm just right. noting, describing it. I'm not saying go out and try to suffer. No, you don't have to do that. Um, you know, but I, I, I do feel like life has been made just hard enough that we need each other. And I think that's to ensure the journey of love. So, so every day I try to lean back in when whatever the day holds pushes me away. I love that. I really do. I, I've not, I've not sort of connected that. That's interesting. So what pushes you away? Lean back into it. it does it make you, and what if it makes you feel uncomfortable? Is that growth? Well, the thing is that this is where we've also been seduced into a fragmented way of living in the modern world. And, you know, you know, in our Constitution of the American, you know, it says life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, you know, that's all fine. But I think it's actually the happiness of pursuit, not the pursuit of happiness. So I think that, you know, we all want to be happy and pain free and and the truth is, you, that's impossible. Uh, you know, it's a, it, to me, it becomes a false god to chase after. So hmm. being uncomfortable is part of living. It's, not, it's something I had to learn in my cancer journey. You know, when I went in in my 30s, I'd never been through anything really difficult. So I was terrified of everything. And I had to go through a lot which was part of my karma. I had to go through all kinds of difficult tests and procedures to find out what kind of cancer I had. And so, you know, I was terrified. I was one of those people that, you know, I think I said, ouch, before someone touched me. You know? <laughs> and I and I kept saying, you know, I would introduce myself as Mark put me out. They thought my last name was <laughs> put me out, you know. <laughs> well, but, you go ahead. <laughs> well, but what happened? What happened was, and again, not through any wisdom on my part, but through exhaustion, heart mm-hmm. exhaustion of my feelings, is I couldn't sustain that level of intensity and intense fear. I couldn't. I had to learn, like looking at the bee with its stinger. I had to learn in the midst of that crisis to make discernments and say, you know what, every, yeah, I'm handled, I'm poked, I'm prodded, I'm shifted. But is every one of those incidents painful? No. Is it annoying? Yes. So I started to have to make discernments about, I couldn't continue to react 11 on a scale of one to 10 at every single thing. It exhausted my heart. And the only way that I could survive was to be more accurate about the experience that was coming my way. And so this is very uh, applicable and transferable to our daily life. So that's why if it's uncomfortable, there's nothing wrong with it. being. We don't have to run from things because they're uncomfortable. You know, we don't want things if they're painful or hurtful or damaging we don't want to let that happen to us but we don't have to run you know we don't have to uh have this illusion that happiness is a sensation free life that that's a that that's also another way is that when we're dead we'll be sensation free that's not happiness Mm. yeah no so i mean how how did you get to be you I mean, you're, I don't understand. (laughs) I mean, it's like you went to college and you started writing and it's like, how, how did you, how did this wisdom get in you? I, I want you to rub off on me. I want to see things the way you see them. And well, the thing is, the thing, I appreciate that. And the thing is that you need to see, because the thing, what happened to me, what, what I share 
is an ex- as my life as an example, not an instruction, because mm. at the heart of it, you, all of us have the same access to that same center. And so that's the thing is through being authentic. What I've learned is by being, you know, life eroded and wore me down to only what was essential. And my part in it was that I had a choice whether to listen to that or not. I had a choice whether to believe in what I saw. You know, the Sufis have a beautiful custom where they talk about polishing experience polishes the heart into a mirror in which you see all of life, every heart, if polished by author, by what? By truth, by love, by authenticity, by courage, by vulnerability, then in the same way that every DNA can, you know, all of life is encoded in a cell, all of life is encoded in a single heart. And so you have access to, we all have access to that. It's not about being me, it's about being you. And we share the journey of how we deal with life as it wears us down. You know, I think life wears away everything that can be worn away and what's left is irreducible. I remember you telling a story about a turtle going down to the bottom of the ocean and popping back up. Oh, yeah. And then he goes down again and he pops back up. Yeah. It's rare for him to pop back up in the single spot he did before. And that's how rare it is of who you are and what makes up you as a human being. And so if you knew how rare you were, would you live differently? And I love that story because that everyone has their unique gifts and and their purpose and what they're called to do. And, and sometimes getting on this conveyor belt of living and buying and all of this other stuff that gets pushed away. Here's a great story, a great example, which I use in one of the books. It's the story of Albert Schweitzer. You know, we all know Albert Schweitzer was this amazing humanitarian who created a hospital in Africa, but Albert Schweitzer before all that was a tenured philosophy professor in Vienna. He was also a extremely talented classical organist. And he would go around, so he had tenure. He was a respected, renowned professor. And he was known, he went around Europe giving these concerts. And then in his four, early 40s, he had a vision. He had a dream that he was supposed to create a hospital in Africa. The only problem was he wasn't a doctor. <laughs> right. And so he, he went around and he asked his colleagues and his respected friends. He said, look, I think I'm supposed to do this. What do you think? And, you know, all of his friends and colleagues said, are you nuts? Are you insane? <laughs> you're, 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 you got it made. You're tenured. You're renowned all over Europe. You're giving these concerts. Forget about it. And he listened respectfully and then he quit and went to medical school, became a doctor, and started a hospital and became Albert Schweitzer. Wow. So let's talk about your new book. What is with the title? What is behind that title? I'm always interested, especially when I see your titles in your books. You know, a a big one for me is uh, A Thousand Ways to Listen. I mean, wow. I mean, that's so true. I mean, the, the worst thing we ever do in our lives is we we don't listen enough. But tell me a little bit about this new book and, and the title. What, is that, what does that mean to you? Well, the, the new book, More Together Than Alone, and it's about the, the power and the lineage of community. And, um, and, what I, it's, and it took me, it's taken me 13 years to, to write research and write this. And, and it's with my, my lens, my heart lens, my poetic lens, but I've, what I've been interested in is gathering stories throughout history and cross-culturally of moments when we've worked well together. For the lessons, I'm not looking to create any social theory or anything academic. I simply want to affirm that there's a lineage of care and interdependence and compassion that we are a part of. And 
uh, and to bring that forward. And of course, I had no idea that it, I would finish it and we would be in the time we're in, you know. Um, and so I've learned tr a tremendous amount by, by you know, each of these books are teachers for me. When, and so retrieving them, I say more than writing them, retrieving them is a great teaching. And, you know, this, this sense with this truth that we are more together than alone. Um, and whether that moment is a moment between two people or whether it's a moment, a long moment of hundreds of years between cultures, like in the Iberian Peninsula, in the Middle Ages in, in Spain, where, where, you know, Jews and Arabs and Christians all live, not only live together, but they thrive together. They thrive together. So there are all these kinds of lessons. And so one of the things that I think is so important is, and this again is a part of spiritual physics. So, you know, we we look at the world as as today, and I believe that the modern world is addicted to the noise of things falling apart. Mm. Things are always falling apart, and they're always coming together at the same time. Just like I was falling apart in that Holiday Inn, but around me things were coming together. Coming together, yeah. And the thing, and so resilience and life force comes from the whole, the totality of that. So we don't need a good news station. We need a whole W-H-O-L-E news station. So I think that the things that are breaking apart and the fear and violence that go with it get more attention because they're louder. Because when mm. things come together, they're quieter. They're quieter. So, I mean, just all you have to do to see this is look at weather. When I grew up, uh, it was called Weather Report. When I turn on the TV, now it's called Stormwatch. Well, the last I knew, storm was only one form of weather. <laughs> right. Right? right? Yeah. So you see how we're just focused, you know, continually. All on the bad. All on the bad. And so one way that, uh, you know, an early chapter in the book, you know, I've tried to understand or look at as a as a citizen, as a person living in our times, how I feel and what that calls on me, <clears throat> you know, to a uh, person of Jewish heritage. Um, I had my grandparents' uh, generation. Uh, there were members of our family that died in the Holocaust. So how am I supposed to deal with that there are Nazis in the streets of America? How am I supposed to do with that? You know, I know that I don't I know that every day I ask myself, how can how what is my called? <clears throat> how am I called to be more visible? You know, and as I look at it, as I back up and look at it through the arc of history, as I mentioned earlier, that we have these movements where we've pushed each other away, where we've gone to come together. <clears throat> and so I imagine there's a chapter in the book called The Two Tribes, where let's imagine all the way back in cave times, the first time two human beings came upon each other. Up to that moment, they thought they were alone. One person on the outside of a cave comes and they go, oh, well, wait, wait a minute. I thought I was alone. Who are you? And the person inside the cave looks at the person outside and goes, you're different. Go away. And I think that was the beginning of the go away tribe. I think that was the beginning of the go away tribe. And then based on the level of fear, then throughout history, we have times where the go away tribe has said, well, you know, I can't trust you'll go away. So I'm going to have to put you where I can see you. I'm going to put you in a camp. I'm going to put you in a refugee site. I'm going to put you in a detention center, in a ghetto. And in the worst of our times, when we've lost, when fear has governed us completely and we've lost sight of our humanity, those are the periods of genocide where that go away tribe has had to say, I'm going to make, I can't trust you'll be where I put you. I'm going to make you go away. But on the other side, the person at the mouth of the cave said, oh, you're different. Come teach me. And that was the beginning of the come teach me tribe. And as that humility and that understanding that we're more together than alone would surface, then we have periods of enlightenment, periods of interdependence and care and compassion. <clears throat> and, you know, Plato, who was definitely part of that tribe, said, we are born whole, W-H-O-L-E, but we need each other to be complete. I love that. Yeah. So 
So it, it's unclear right now which way this is all going. And the, the catch, if you will, is that we belong to both tribes. Mm-hmm. Depend, and we all play a role. Depend, we are they. There is no they. Uh, you know, no matter how I get upset watching the news, there is no they. So depending on the level of fear that we that I wake up with tomorrow, I could switch tribes and I'll need you to remind me that we're more together than alone. And so this is a period, I think, in America and around the world where it's incumbent on us to to stay visible and caring and vulnerable. You know, in the Middle Ages in Europe was the Dark Ages there. Only 10% of the European population was literate. 10% of the people in Europe kept literacy alive for all of humanity for 200 years. So I don't know if we're going into a dark age again, but if we are, then it's incumbent on us to keep the literacy of the heart alive. Mm. Mm, That's great. I, I look forward to really dive in deeper in this book. And I, I think it's it's just uh, interesting how it just pops up and it's finished 13 years later in the midst of all that is happening around us. I, I, I think that's, that's just serendipity. Um, I, I'm going to close this because I'm really interested. Um, we, me, you, were one day going to die. Um, how do you want to be remembered, Mark? What is your legacy? What do you hope your legacy is? You know, I, I, um, my, my legacy is I hope uh, that my work and my personhood will be that of a window, of a good window that lets life in and light in and lets uh, people see through what will help them live. Just like that window in your grandmother's room. That yeah. You probably clean. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Again, I thank you for who you are in my life. And this time I will never forget it. Um, I hope one day we come face to face so I could just, I don't know, hug you. Um, you've just done so much for the world that I'm in and me personally. And you continue to do so, and I am one of those individuals that are right beside you, hoping to keep the the heart alive through any transition that we go through as human beings and, and make sure that distance from the head to the heart sometimes is not as far as we think it is. Oh, well, thank you, and thank you for your good work, and I hope you, can, you keep flourishing. Thanks for joining us today, and remember... You're the designer.